Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Week in Politics here on the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. We'll be joined by the Byline Times political editor Adam Bienkoff discussing Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement and back for a second week in a row, Heidi Kuda from the Radicalised Pod. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. The latest digital edition is out now and the paper edition has just gone to press and it features content that you cannot read anywhere else. We haven't got a millionaire backer. There is no big corporation behind us. So we rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless independent journalism. You get details about how to subscribe over at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month. So go on, live a little and take out a subs. If you have already done so, thank you very much indeed. Let's start with the UK then and with Adam and the autumn statement. Not a lot of cheer about either for the country at large, I would suggest, Adam, nor for the Tory backbenches, who there's this suggestion going round that this was more of a of a Gordon Brown budget. I don't know if I totally agree with that, but that phrase has cropped up, hasn't it, since the autumn statement? It's a pretty bleak picture, and it's gone down incredibly badly with everyone, really. I mean, the, the state of the, the front pages, particularly normally conservative supporting pages, is looking pretty dreadful for... The government and they've really got themselves into the kind of worst of all worlds really and on the one hand they're raising taxes now to the the highest level seen since the second world war also increasing borrowing uh, alarming rates and ordinarily in that situation you think that well, there'll be a lot of money around to spend on public services you know that's not the case we're going to have some increases in spending on on health and education and, and local government, but not enough to make up for the inflationary pressures that we're seeing. And then soon after that, we're going to see big cuts to public spending. So we're sort of heading towards the sort of Scandinavian levels of taxing, but without the kind of benefits of that in terms of our public services. And so, yes, the voters are unhappy because they're going to see they're, they're going to be paying a lot more in tax. Conservative MPs are very unhappy because all of the promises that they were given by Liz Truss and of course, in the last 2019 Conservative Manifesto, not to raise taxes, all being broken. We're going to see much higher tax burden, uh, we're going to see much higher borrowing, and public services are still going to struggle massively. And it, that is a really toxic mix to be going into the next general election with. I spoke to an economist and a philanthropist on the most recent episode of the Byline Times podcast before this one. And both argued that there is an alternative, this narrative that there is an economic black hole that has to be filled and that the the decisions that Jeremy Hunt's taking are massively constrained by that isn't actually accurate, that with a significant redistribution of the wealth that is in this country, we can ensure that we do have decent public services, that we do have decent state education. Now, that might be politically a very tough sell. It would be a tough sell for a Labour government, never mind a Conservative one. But the opportunity is there. The money is there. We choose, as a society, not to point it in the direction of the people who need it most. Yes, and the big argument that Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak have been have been trying to make in recent weeks 
is to say that this is all inevitable. This is all the result of global pressures and, and global headwinds, as, as Jeremy Hunt called it during his statement this week. But actually, if you look at the situation that the UK is and compare it to other leading world economies, we're doing much worse than other European nations who haven't made the same own goals that this government has made. A lot of it's to do with the austerity of the early 2010s, where they slashed spending on investment, they slashed on education, on schools, and of course, Brexit as well. You know, the, the Institute for Fiscal Studies that hit the director, Paul Johnson, today described that as a, a massive own goal. And clearly, it's had a massive effect on our economy. So looking back, it's clear this wasn't inevitable. Had the government taken a different strategy, if we hadn't left the EU, if we hadn't slashed public services and public spending over a, a long period of time, we wouldn't be having to take many of these decisions that we're now having to take now. But of course, looking forward, there are also choices as well. And I think to, to be fair to the, to the government, in overall terms, looking at this autumn statement, it is a lot more progressive than it might otherwise have been had uh, Truss and Kwarteng been in charge. Overall, higher earners are uh, taking a bigger hit. But of course, we're all taking a bigger hit. And there are sort of longer term choices that the government could be taking now. Now, so structural decisions in how the economy works, where investment is placed. And we're not really seeing any of that in this autumn statement. Instead, we're seeing a sort of a bunch of short term decisions being taken just to get the government through to the next general election. And it's worth saying, actually, that although the sort of headline figures here are big cuts to public spending over the medium to long term, we actually don't know what any of those cuts are going to be. The government didn't spell out any of the spending cuts. And the Treasury asked yesterday to spell out a single spending cut that it plans in the medium to long term wasn't able to come up with a single specific cut. So we're being asked to believe that we're going to sort of keep spending roughly flat over the next two years up to general election and then have to impose massive spending cuts, but without telling us what any of those spending cuts are. So it's a deeply dishonest position that the government have put themselves in. They're being dishonest about what cuts they're going to make. They're just being dishonest about where they're going to, to fall. And they're being dishonest about who is to blame for that. And it's not people on benefits. It's it's not the opposition. It's it's the government and it's the government's own policy. Yes, the sort of global headwinds have contributed to that, but also it's the fact that we the economy just hasn't been working for the last ten years, and it wasn't working before COVID. It wasn't working before Brexit, and it's certainly not working now. I listened to the response from Jeremy Hunt's rival on the opposition benches, the Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves. I thought she did pretty well. Jeremy Hunt used this line of a recession made in Russia, a recovery made in Britain. I thought that was quite snappy. Rachel Reeves came back and talked about the Bobby Ewing dimension to mm. the Conservative Party, <laughs> waking up as if the last 12 years had never happened. We've got the same cast members. But what's been going on has all been forgotten. And she compared it, obviously, to the TV programme Dallas and suggesting that this wasn't all a dream. This has been the nightmare of Tory Britain. As I say, I felt she did pretty well in the chamber. I don't know how well that will translate to the public at large. Yeah, I mean, I think most people don't don't watch this occasion. I, I agree with you. I think it was a, a very strong statement from Rachel Reeves, and particularly in contrast to Jeremy Hunt's attempts to rebut it following her speech. Another good line that she said, you know, never before 
have so many people been taxed so much to get so little in return. And I think that's the sort of fundamental issue here. I think the public are actually fairly in favour of increased taxes, but they want to see something for their money. They want to see the public services improving, and we're just not going to see that, despite the huge amounts of extra money that the government has spent in the past few years and is going to spend in the next two years, we're still going to see our public services crumbling. I think most people aren't going to see what Rachel Reeves is saying, although a lot of people will, and she did get a very positive write-up in the papers today, so that will will filter through to, to people. But I think the overall picture is that people are just not going to be convinced by the argument that the government is making. Jeremy Hunt saying... It's not our fault, Gov. It was the the last guys. Well, the last guys was we're talking about a month ago, you know. Uh, and <laughs> well, I think saying, he's actually saying it wasn't the last guy so much as it's that guy over there. It's that guy in Russia. He's the yes, well, it's, it's it's a bit of they're trying to have it both ways. On one hand, they're saying yes, it's the global headwinds, but the other hand, they're saying oh, you know, we acknowledged mistakes were made. They're not really being quite honest about it. But the truth is, it's both. It is partly to do with the Ukraine war, but we're, it is also the case that we're in a much worse position than, than other G7 countries. In fairness to the government, the rate at which you pay the higher rate of income tax of 45% has been reduced from 150 grand a year down to 125 grand a year. The living wage has been increased pensions and benefits are also being increased in line with inflation. But there is a sense in which this is a budget which gives with one hand and takes away with the other because the tax thresholds are being frozen. So if you earn more as a result of, let's say, the minimum wage being increased, you're more likely to have to pay income tax on it. So as well as dealing with inflation, you'll be worse off in that way too. Yeah, well, I mean, it comes back to dishonesty, doesn't it? The the biggest tax changes that we're seeing aren't actually really changes at all. They are, as you say, freezing the tax threshold. So a lot of people are suddenly going to be finding that they're spending a lot more in tax than they were before without actually being told about it, essentially, you know, because of the freezing in the thresholds. And overall, the tax changes are do look sort of broadly progressive, but you're still going to be in a situation where over half of the country, I think it's 55% of the country, are going to be paying more tax than they were before. And as I say, people are willing to pay more tax. People pay more tax in in other countries like Scandinavia, for instance, but they get Scandinavian levels of public services. We're certainly not getting that at the moment, and we're not going to be getting that in in the coming years. So I don't think the public are going to be thanking the government at the next general election for raising their taxes and still having not being able to get an appointment at their doctor's and still having begging letters from their headmasters of their schools. I just don't think that that's a winning position, either for the country or for the Conservative Party. Meanwhile, across the pond in the United States, Heidi, we spoke last week and the situation relating to the House of Representatives was in the balance. The Republicans now have that balance. What difference is that going to make to politics in the US? The fact that Joe Biden as president won't actually have control of the legislature. Well, it's going to be a terrible clown show and big problem is how we're going to cover it because we have embedded propagandists who are going to try to propagandize people for the next two years. And is the media going to parrot what they say again? Are we going to get caught in that trap? And unfortunately, it's not a cute clown show. This isn't a funny clown show. These are many of the same people who actually participated in trying to overthrow our democracy. And as I mentioned last week, we have to stop memory holding these moments in time. 
I projected last week we were going to lose the house. We did. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be a very, very distressing couple of years. And how we cover it is going to be quite the question, because are we going to be doing two years on investigations on Hunter Biden's laptop? Is this going to be Benghazi 2.0? I don't know. They have a lot of backbenchers that even their own party's going to have to contend with. So, you know, we had some successes in the midterms, which I'm sure I'll be able to mention, but losing the House is going to create havoc for the next couple of years. We, in your case, being the Democrats, let's just make that clear. And, yes. and you've said that you have concerns about whether the United States can continue to be a functioning democracy. We do have a lack of accountability problem overall. We are still determining whether or not we are a country with the rule of law. We have Republicans all over the country who've engaged in illegal behavior. We have an attorney general in Texas who's been facing charges for seven years. So we have to determine if we are still a rule of law country, if we still have accountability. We need to know if our Department of Justice and our FBI are actually willing to go after those who tried to overthrow our government. We've seen a lot of prosecutions on the low-level actors in that, but we have not seen the type of prosecutions that we need to see at the highest level. So we are still determining if we are a country of laws, and we actually have states that are proving themselves incredibly lawless. We have the state of Ohio, which has become a lawless state. They actually voted with maps that were declared illegal. So this lack of accountability at the state level is also something that I have grave concerns about at the federal level. Will the January the 6th Senate committee hearings continue? Do we know? We don't know. We don't know if we get season two of the January 6th committee. We do not know that. There's talk of it being picked up in the Senate. But, you know, the latest is that they subpoenaed Trump. And we know that Steve Bannon is awaiting sentencing. But we have to see if our Department of Justice is going to be picking it up from here. It is my hope they will. Merrick Garland said a few months ago that they are engaged in the biggest investigation and the furthest reaching investigation in American history. And I have to believe that's true. But we do have this incredible lag time. You know, Trump ran around saying Russia is a hoax, Russia is a hoax. Well, six years after it occurred in 2016, a senior aide to Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul was just convicted of funneling illegal money from Russians into the Trump campaign. And it took six years for this conviction. So we have this terrible lag time. And I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, Trump announcing his third run for president. And really what that is, is an attempt to slow walk justice again and to evade justice. Yeah, you mentioned Merrick Garland there. Merrick Garland is the United States Attorney General. And Heidi, you mentioned that Trump has announced his intention to run then as president yeah. for yes. 2024. It has yes. to be said, without the same amount of fanfare as before, yeah. Fox News, one of his great supporters, the morning afterwards, after Trump announced that he would stand, appeared not to want to cover the story at all on a, on a program called Fox and Friends the next day. Yeah, Trump's announcement was greeted like day-old McDonald's. 
And as I have mentioned to you, he's been pulling a Berlusconi. He's attempting to stay out of prison for trying to overthrow our government. He's lost many of his big billionaire backers. He's even lost Rupert Murdoch. And that really is an example of him being the biggest loser in the midterms, candidates that he backed, taking a shellacking. And, you know, we have former GOP governors now running around saying Trump is harming the brand. What brand are they actually talking about? The insurrection brand, the theocratic fascist brand, the Republican Party is in disarray. And I am here for it, Adrian. As I've noticed previously on your show, it ceased being the political party that we once knew many years ago, and it has taken on more of a cultic definition. So we know that what we're going to see with the House is they're not going to be about governing. It'll be about retaining power at any cost. And if that means having to distract with endless investigations about Hunter Biden's laptop, that's what they will do. You've observed before that this is not just about Donald Trump, that the poison in the US system is not about one individual, that if Donald Trump isn't the representative of these anti-democratic forces, somebody else will be, that this is more than about just one person. Oh, yeah. This is an infection in the party formerly known as the GOP. Many of the people that I've just mentioned have already shifted to the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, who I describe as a Mussolini posing oaf. He's been using his governorship in Florida to say things like, this is where woke goes to die. He's been campaigning against Trump for months now without even declaring just testing the waters. And GOP pundits are already trying to frame him as a more decent version of Trump, which is very dangerous because he's anything but decent. He's been attacking human rights actively. He's another Republican who's willing to troll for dollars. His former press officer had to register as a foreign agent. He's all those things that we have been reporting on for years. As I've described on your show before, this political party has become a fifth column for the Kremlin, essentially. And he is one of those characters who is very, very dangerous. He's the one who flew migrants to Martha's Vineyards, distracting during a period when the Republicans figured out that there was going to be a big row backlash. So he may be the anointed one who ultimately runs against Trump, and that would be very, very dangerous for our country. I wonder how much of a debate there is around ageism, Heidi. This is something that concerns me greatly. And I heard an interview on a mainstream UK channel with a guest from the United States asking bluntly the question, if Joe Biden stands to be president for a second term, will he not simply be too old? Now, I think you can ask questions about whether somebody has mental competence, whether they are good people, whether they have intelligent ideas. Personally, and I don't know what you think about this, I think the idea of asking whether somebody is too old without any context is ageist. That doesn't mean to say that ageism isn't around and present in the political discourse and in the wider community. Is Biden's age an issue, do you think, for American electors? 
the GOP will use any wedge to make anything an issue for American electors. You know, they tried to say, oh, it's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, stupid. Well, it turned out during the midterms, it was not the economy. It was women's health care rights that was more important. And that's one of the big reasons we didn't see this red wave. So we are very blessed in this country, as you guys can imagine, to have a man as decent as Joe Biden to be our president. I am so grateful that he is our president. He has been ticking things off his list uh, rapidly and one at a time, doing things that matter to Americans and engaging young people, which is why you saw such a big, huge turnout when you can actually eradicate some of their college debt. That's a good thing, right? So he has been very aware of the things that truly do matter to Americans. I see ageism all the time, rather than viewing people for the great experience they have and all of his public service that made him ready to serve on day one. And also the presidency is not about one human being. It's the people that you put into positions to make government function that matters. So it's not just one man doing a job. But what I will say is that we are in an information war and we have have been under attack in the target nation of an information war. This affects you as well, Adrian. Our public square, Twitter, has been attacked. Bottom line is that I do think that there is a generation that has not grown up with technology that might not understand how relevant technology is to transmitting communication. And Elon Musk is actively destroying a vital communications platform in an information war. And I do think that that is maybe something generationally that those of us who grew up online may see more than the generation in their 80s who may still be a bit removed from that. But I certainly would not discount Joe Biden in any way. And if he does choose to run again, we would be very blessed to have a decent person at the helm and not one of these power-at-any-cost cretins. Heidi, there's a big thing happening next week. I don't know how aware of it you are, but our country, or at least part of our country, England, part of the United Kingdom, is going to be playing your country, the United States, at football, soccer, in the World Cup. Are you aware of that? Does it matter to you? Is there, is it getting any play in the States? You know what? I dated my last jock at 18, but I got to say, Adrian, I listen to your football shows just because it's a time for my brain to not have any engagement. I literally let it wash over me because I have no skin in the game. So all I know <laughs> is what you report. I'd never trust me. Adam, of course, from a, an England perspective, and of course, Wales are at the World Cup as well with much less cultural baggage, I think it's fair to say, yeah. than the English, or at least very different cultural baggage to England. England are there, but many people are deeply unhappy that the World Cup is in Qatar in the first place. It's got an abysmal record in terms of human rights, in particular with regard to LGBT rights and migrant workers. We've got national icons like David Beckham collecting a reported... £10 million to act as an ambassador for Qatar. I've written a piece for bylinetimes.com about the absence of World Cup fever mm -hmm. in England and the amount of response I've had from that from people saying they're not going to be watching this World Cup. They're not going to be engaging yeah. with it because they are disgusted that 
Qatar, of all countries, is hosting this tournament? I think it's pretty clear that there isn't that buzz. Looking back to previous World Cups, there was always a big run-up to it and a lot of discussion. And the only real discussion going on at the moment, as you say, is about whether people are going to watch or people are going to turn up. That may change once it started, and particularly if England do well in, in the first round. I think people may suddenly forget their objections and, and get into it. But it's, it's, it doesn't look great. And there's news that beer is going to be banned at the venues in Qatar, which wasn't the case before. So it's not going to be a great event all round. Talking about Elon Musk, although Twitter is an American website and America does dominate on Twitter, actually the biggest event in terms of Twitter traffic historically has been around World Cups, football World Cups. And with the, the massive drop in Twitter staff that we've seen, people either being sacked or, or resigning over recent weeks, the sort of ma- huge amount of traffic that the World Cup is likely to generate on Twitter could be the thing that finally makes Twitter sort of fall over and the sort of lights go out with so many staff missing. So it could be even more consequential than we realise. Yeah, I do just want to caveat as well what I said about the World Cup with the knowledge that if you are a Wales supporter, this is the first time Wales have been in a World Cup since 1958. And of course, if you're a Wales supporter, you may care deeply about the human rights issues that we have discussed and the allegations of corruption around the handing of the World Cup to Qatar. At the same time, you will be very excited as a football fan. And I don't want to squelch on that if you're a Wales football supporter. You can look at other World Cups and you know there are questions about previous hosts, you know, Russia most uh, notably. And I think there is a debate to be had about how much you separate those issues from the football because lots of countries, not just hosts, but also participating countries have got serious issues with human rights. And I'm not sure where I personally stand on, on that. I don't think it's clear cut that just because it's happening in Qatar that, you know, you should necessarily sort of veto watching it. You know, these are sort of slightly more complex than that issues than that, I think. And in terms of Twitter, I've got to say that on Byline Radio, we use Twitter Spaces. Byline Times Podcast uses Twitter to market and promote the work that we do. And like any social media platform, it has its faults, considerable faults, considerable weaknesses. But it also, as Heidi says, has been a great kind of meeting place as well. And I think from that point of view, it would be immensely sad if it were to fall over. But clearly, it needs to be better managed than it is currently being done by Elon Musk. So we can only hope that it will survive, perhaps with new owners, because there is a fracturing going on. People are going to places like Mastodon. They're going to places like Toad. They're going to Instagram. But that one single place, which became the home of political debates, is at risk as we speak. Twitter is, is by no means the biggest social network. It's actually one of the smallest social networks, but it's always been the sort of centre for political debate. Also, I, I think for holding powerful people to account in, in a way that other platforms haven't been. If we were to lose that, that would be really damaging. And, you know, there's a reason why authoritarian regimes block Twitter in their in their countries. That's because it does fulfil that role. You look back to, you know, in sort of early days of Twitter and its role in the Arab Spring is, is a good, good example of that. But also in our own country, you know, the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, towards the end of his regime, when he was coming under fire over Partygate, spent a lot of time actually complaining about Twitter in the House of Commons, complaining that his MPs were spending too much time on Twitter and that was sort of blamed Twitter for his own downfall. I don't think we should underestimate the power of Twitter, even if only a minority of people 
use it, it is actually sort of has have an outsized power in terms of its effect on politicians and its effect on the political debate. It's where we've been speaking truth to power for years. You're absolutely right, Adam. Heidi, thank you very much indeed. Thank you to Adam as well. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to The Week in Politics here on the Byline Times podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to it, please spread the word. We don't have a marketing budget, so anything you can do to share information about this podcast on whatever social media platform you use would be much appreciated. And don't forget that we are funded by subscriptions to The Byline Times. It is a brilliant monthly newspaper, and if you take out a subscription, you're not only getting that paper, you're keeping us in work as well and allowing us access to the airwaves. Head over to bylinetimes.com for details of how to subscribe. That's at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time. Cheers now. Bye-bye.